I'm just in awe of the mysterious ways in which God works. I love how God doesn't just fit our agenda, but there are times when He just breaks in and oppresses His presence so powerfully upon someone and tells them, you need to move right now. And I'm just thankful that it's evidence of the fact that God is still involved in this world. He's not just a far-off cosmic being who just creates the world and lets it fly off into confusion. But He is the one who sustains the world at every moment. And we're thankful for that. We've been going through uh, the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 15 today. And if you're new with us, what we do here is we just take a book of the Bible and we walk through it week to week. We believe that all scripture is God breathed, God has produced it, and he speaks to us through it. And so we like to just carefully move through the text to see what God is saying to us. And we'll be in Acts chapter 15 today. I'm going to read for us the first... Um, 12 verses or 11 verses and then we'll jump into the text Acts chapter 15 verse 1 but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that we can come together as a people and just recount this great story of how the gospel began to go forth to every tribe, tongue, and nation. People who did not know this glorious God came to know this God and were accepted by you. 
In fact, you initiated the contact with them. They didn't have to clean themselves up before they came to, came to you, Lord, but you pursued them. You came after them. And we thank you that you're a God that does the same today. I pray that you would use your word as you always do to cut us, to convict us, to um, mesmerize us with your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the main characters in the story at the beginning of this story are Paul and Barnabas. And they're actually, once we come to chapter 15, they're coming to the end of their journey now. They've just reached the end of their first missionary journey that they began back in the beginning of Acts 13. In the beginning of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas, they set sail from the city of Antioch, so on the northeast uh, shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And they embark on a journey that takes them two years in total to complete, traveling a total distance of roughly what would be the equivalent of here to Dallas, Texas, by sea or by simply walking. And their mission is to proclaim the great and glorious truth of the gospel. To proclaim the truth on synagogues and side streets and hilltops and highways to anyone that they could get in contact with, that they came across this great news of a God who breaks the chains of of addiction and um, all the things that we are ensnared to, joylessness, emptiness, vanity, and ultimately from the ultimate consequence of offending a holy and righteous God, eternal separation from Him in hell. It's this message that they went out to proclaim. It's this message that nearly got them killed along the way. It's this message that many Gentiles, men and women, people who never knew the name of Jesus or were not familiar with the ways of God, came to hear and rejoice in. And it's the same message that is held out for hungry souls today who want to know the true and living God. At the end of chapter 14, they finally return from this long roundabout journey at the end of two years. And we read in verse 27 of chapter 14, it says, And when they arrived back at Antioch, where they started from, and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. But this sweet time of rehearsing the mercies of God, all the miraculous ways in which they saw God work over the past two years, was interrupted by confusion. And that's where chapter 15 picks up. We're going to break the the text into four sections. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first would be, there was a time of, of confusing the faith. So it's right, confusing the faith. That's verses 1 through 5. Number two, clarifying the faith. Verses 6 through 21. Number three, communicating the faith. Verses 22 through 35. And number four, continuing the faith. Verses 36 to 41. Confusing, clarifying, communicating, continuing. As you said at the beginning of chapter 15, confusion enters its way into the church. And we read at the beginning of of chapter 15, verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, it's important to know that these men, they weren't just outsiders who were non-Christians, who were coming to just disrupt everything that was happening in the church. These people were actually believers. They were actually brothers. That's what the term brothers means. Anytime you see it in the New Testament, it's referring to like-minded people of the faith. So there are these, these brothers, these, these Christians who have come in from Judea, and they're beginning to, to teach things that are contrary to the gospel because they're confused on what the essence of, of faith in Jesus Christ alone really means. They're, they're, they're not used to having this free offer of the gospel just freely thrown out to the people to tell them to come as they are and, and not having that message tethered down by different rituals and, and different laws that you have to obey and different ways that you have to present yourself first to be acceptable by God. They're not used to that. These Jews, they're, they're used to reading in, in their Old Testaments, in the early books of the Bible, like Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, all the laws that God had prescribed that were to govern every aspect of a person's life, from what they ate to what they shouldn't eat, how they should worship God, how they shouldn't worship God, where they ought to go, when they ought to go, where they ought not to go. And to just have this free offer of the Gospel that just says, Jesus Christ has died for your sin. Come to Him as you are. Believe in Him, trust Him, and experience everlasting life. Taste of it in part now and increasingly forever. They weren't used to that. So in particular, they, they thought that, well, there must still be at least something that we, that we can carry over from the Old Testament that we still need to do to, to present ourselves to God, to be right for, for God to accept us. It can't just be believing in Him alone. And they bring out the old rite of circumcision. They say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, then you cannot be saved. Circumcision was the most basic way of identifying yourself as a, as a child of God, as a member of the community of God. Going way back to the first patriarch of the Jewish faith, Abraham, back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 17, verse 10, where God told Abraham, all of my people, all of your descendants, they will be circumcised. All the males will be circumcised on the eighth day after they are born as a physical sign that they belong to me. And so these Jewish Christians are thinking, well, they at least still need that, that physical sign, right? They still need some sign that shows that they belong to the community of God. They still need to do something to present themselves worthy to God. And basically what they're struggling with is the same thing that we, we struggle with today, where we still feel like there's some way in which I need to present myself right before God, before He can initiate action with me. Before He can overcome my life and, and, and truly adopt me into His family. I need to clean myself up first. I need to take care of these side issues first before I come to Him and then He will accept me. And that's contrary to what the Gospel teaches. So they believe that these, these Gentiles 
these, these non-Jews who never grew up in Jewish homes and therefore they weren't circumcised when they were born, if they are going to join our club and be part of this faith that we own, they need to become like us first and be circumcised. And Paul says exactly the opposite is true. It says in verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, meaning they were going back and forth. It wasn't a small argument. It's just a way of stating the opposite. It was a, a large back and forth. They could not come to an agreement. Debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. They've reached this, this gridlock. They cannot convince these people that all you need is faith in Jesus Christ. Just believe in Him. Just trust Him. And He has already taken care of the rest. They can't come to that agreement. So Paul and Barnabas, they, they set out on a journey again, this time 250 miles south to the epicenter of Christianity, the, the holiest city of the Jews, Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem where the other apostles and leaders of the church are, still reside. It's, it's, it's where the most tension in the church and the problems in the church and the confrontation with the Jews who wanted to undermine the integrity of Christianity, it was where the center of all of that was. And so Paul and Barnabas, they go in order to meet with the apostles and settle this matter. But I love what they do on their way in verse 3. And we can learn from this. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Before they get there, verse 3 says, So being sent on their way by the church, they pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers there. It says that they were still describing to the people that they met, they were still telling them, hey, these Gentiles got converted and look at all the wonderful things that God has done. Despite the fact that the conversion of the Gentiles was what this whole debate was about. This is what the Jews were saying. They weren't sure if the Gentiles were really converted or not. But it's precisely because Paul and Barnabas are so clear on what the faith entails, that they're not shaken by these different winds of, of belief and these different thoughts that are out there that are pushing against them. They, they are rooted so deeply in the faith that they know the source of their joy, and they're able to continue to proclaim that truth even in the midst of this difficult situation. And it's just an encouragement to us to be like-minded in that we, we continue to invest ourselves in the Word of God. Study the Word to show yourself approved, to, to strengthen your foundation in the Gospel. In places like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, it's the reason why Paul talks about, talks about us no longer being children, like children and infants in our thinking and understanding of the gospel, being those who are tossed to and fro like a ship, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're so easily deterred and discouraged when we're not rooted in the faith. 
Therefore, Paul says, don't continue to be children. Invest yourselves. Grow. In fact, the writer of this book of, of Acts, Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, they're sort of like part one and part two. At the beginning of Luke, he tells the reason why he writes the whole Gospel and ultimately Acts. He talks about the fact that he says in verse 3 of, of chapter 1, writing to this benefactor, Theophilus, for whom he wrote the book, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He says, I'm writing this book so that you can have it, to study it, to read it, so that you can have certainty, so that you can know with assurance what you have been taught in the, in the basis of your faith. That's the point of why we're going through this book of the Bible, so that we can have certainty, so we can truly know how God has, has saved us. Finally, in verse 4. They arrive in Jerusalem. It says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So they're just here laying out their testimony, just like they had done in Antioch. This is everything that God has done. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Basically, the, the argument just escalated here when they get to Jerusalem. When they get to the, the center of, of Judaism, where all of the strong Jewish scribes are, and even here when they mention the Pharisees, these are likely believers now who were trained up in a very rigorous upbringing in, in Judaism, and they're used to these laws being a part of every facet of life. And they're now saying, not only is it appropriate for these Gentiles to be circumcised if they want to belong to God, but they're saying also, and they must keep the entire law of Moses. They still need to be worried about doing all the right things in order for God to accept them. Going through all the stages of, of cleansing yourself and, and trying to, to organize your own life and presenting yourself worthy to God. Rather than God taking the initiative to save you. So it's a state of confusion that they're in now. But thanks to God, they're able to, to clarify the issue. This is going on to point number two, starting in verse six. Clarifying the faith. It says in verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So they all come together. They seek the Lord. Verse seven. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. When he says that they, they know that God has been working towards the Gentiles, he's referring in particular back to an event in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 where Peter, this this strong Jewish 
Christian apostle of the Lord encountered a man named Cornelius who was, he was a Gentile, he was a non-Jew, he was non-circumcised, and Peter witnessed firsthand how God had, had converted Cornelius' heart and the heart of his family, and they all came to faith, and it was, it was mind-blowing. Peter did not know that God was going to move among the Gentiles, and yet he did. And Peter came, and he recounted all of that to the apostles. And note that that was, by this time in Acts chapter 15, that had happened about a decade ago. That was about ten years prior when that event with Cornelius happened, and this was still an issue in the church. And God is finally resolving this now, as Peter stands up. Notice how he starts his argument. He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice. He starts with the initiating act of God. This is where Peter is going to settle the issue. This is what God chose to do in moving towards the Gentiles. And it's amazing what he says. He says, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. It's it's sort of an awkward Sentence. What does he mean that God chose that by my mouth they would believe? When Peter, in the early, early chapters of, of Acts, stood up to proclaim the gospel, he was primarily thinking, I'm addressing the Jews of all the nations, all those who are familiar with the ways of God and have maybe gone astray from God, who don't know who the Messiah is. That's who I'm addressing. And yet Peter says that God actually used my words to reach those who were on the outskirts. God had decided not just these Jews to reach with the gospel, but he was going to reach and call those who were far off. Those who are like most of us in this room, who were not inherently part of the Jewish people. We're not born in Israel. We don't live in Palestine. We are all those who are far off. And this is... Peter is saying the moment when God said, they need to come to me as well. They need to know me. He goes on. He says in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Now, throughout the Bible, the, the, the word to know is not just referring to an, an intellect, like something that I know, like facts, but something that I experientially know, that I've had contact with. He's saying that God knows the heart and that God is able to communicate and, and to interact with you at the core of your being in a way that no other human can. God knows the heart. It's why in, in the Psalms they talk about, God, search me and know me and see if there's any impure way in me and, and purify me and lead me in the way everlasting. They know that God can get down into all of our mess, all that's jumbled up in our hearts and, and speak to us powerfully and transform us. That's what Peter is, is starting his argument with. He says, you know that God is the one who is able to speak to the heart and change the heart. He knows the heart. He's, he's intimate with the heart. And God clearly spoke to these people at the heart level, he's saying. 
He bore witness to them. He, he, he drew in nearer than anyone could and spoke to these people by giving them the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that God places in our hearts that Paul talks about in, in, in Romans 8 and says it's that spirit that when, when a believer, when a person becomes a believer, they now have this, this sense about them that knows that God is their father. They cry out, Abba, Father. It's something that, that wells up in them. It's because God speaks to us at the heart level. And Peter is saying, brothers, you saw this happen to all these people who were far off. How God spoke to them at the heart level, gave them the Holy Spirit, made them believers prior to them taking any step of obedience towards Him. They didn't fix themselves up. They didn't circumcise themselves to present themselves for for candidacy for Christianity. God saved them. In verse 9 he says, And he made no distinction between us and them. He cleansed their hearts by faith. All they did was place trust in Jesus Christ, knowing him to be their king, their savior, the one who can cleanse them from their sins. He made no distinction. So finally, verse 10, Peter concludes with, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither us nor our fathers were able to bear. Start with that that last half of that verse. This yoke that neither us nor our fathers were able to bear. Peter is touching on the fact that the Bible teaches that the laws, all the laws that we read about in the Old Testament... God was not really expecting us to be able to live up to the standard of absolute moral perfection. In fact, God gives us the law. He gives us this moral standard so that when we see how much, how, how far short we fall in comparison to this law, when we realize that I'm not able to, to live that consistently good, I, I just don't have it in me, that we realize how sinful we are and how much we are in need of a pure and righteous God to cleanse us, to bring us to himself. This is what Paul says in in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that's everybody, so that every mouth may be stopped. That's, we all may stop giving excuses for why we are this way or why we do such and such, but we realize that we have no argument before God. We are guilty. And the whole world may be accountable to God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law helps us to see our true state. It's not just God giving us the law to beat us down. He gives us these laws so that we come to a a, a real awareness of who we are before Him. That we're sinful. That we're broken. That we can't live up to God's standard. None of us can. No one in this room can. And Peter's saying, you know this. And he says, what you're actually doing... You're putting God to the test. This is a, a, a strong, this is a very strong statement. It has these, these echoing Old Testament connotations, like when the people of God were, were in the wilderness and God had, had tested them by making them depend on famine, uh, uh, 
depend on manna and, and God basically for their sustenance and they're grumbling and complaining and they believe that, that God's not actually going to provide for them and Moses says to them, why are you testing him? You're doubting what God has done. You're saying, God, what you have done is not good enough. So these people, this, this is really an act of, of pride, he's saying. He's saying, you're telling God that the way in which he has saved people and totally removed anything that they have to do apart from believing and trusting in him and allowed people to come to him freely, in fact, pursuing people freely of his own initiative, what you're saying is that's not good enough. I want them to look like me first before they can be part of our little Christian clique. I want them to be circumcised, and, and they, have to, they have to come to my standard before they can be accepted by God. And Peter's saying, what you're actually doing is just testing God. You're testing Him. Be careful. Because he says in verse 11, although you're testing Him, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. God it shows no partiality. He, he has a single standard, and that is Jesus Christ and faith and trust in Him alone, looking to the perfect one as our sacrifice, believing in Him, trusting Him, loving Him, adoring Him, looking to Him as, as the treasure that He says, as a treasure that was buried in a field, and over your joy over it, you, you dispel everything else that you have, sell everything else that you have in order to have just that treasure. That's all that's important to me, is Jesus. He is my King. He's my compass. He's my rock. Anyone who believes in Jesus like that will be saved, Peter says. In verse 12, you can tell that the, the entire... You can tell that this truly is a body of Christians in that when the truth goes forth, everyone is silent. Verse 12, it says, And all the assembly fell silent. They all realized once, once the truth was clearly proclaimed, this is what the gospel is. The converted heart will submit to it. There's not, it, it doesn't escalate the confrontation and the controversy from that point. Because these are truly a group of believers. There's confusion amongst the body as there will be in any, any body. There are disagreements. But when the truth is held up, and exalted, the true people of God will submit and yield to it and say, Amen. I was wrong. That's right. That's what we need to conform to. And now that everybody's on the same page, you can just imagine. It says, they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done, to, had done through them among the Gentiles. Peter had given them one example of how God had, had converted a Gentile man several years ago. And now they sit around the round table and Paul and Barnabas share their journey over the last two years of how God had done it again and again and again and again and again. And can you just imagine hearing that for the first time? All these people who we thought were not good enough for God. God has come and, and he, he rescued them. He's taken them from all these different places and all these different walks of life and brought them to Himself. 
for the sake of time, we'll, we'll speed up more quickly. He says, after that, in verse 13, it says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon, just the other name for Peter, he's saying, Peter has related how God has first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And now he goes back, and it's like he, he flips back in his Old Testament, and he looks at a passage in the Old Testament. It's actually Amos chapter 9, verse 11 through 12. And he just quotes, and he says, This is what God said he was going to do, actually. He says, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. When he says, I will rebuild the tent of David, he's... He's drawing upon this this Old Testament imagery of when the people of God were first led out of Israel and when God set them up in the wilderness and he had them construct a tent, a a tabernacle, where they were to, to meet with God. God said, I will make my glory and my presence known in this tent. This is where I will dwell. You will have a representative come into the tent. Moses, who will, who will see my glory, he, he will meet with me, and he will come out and proclaim my words to you. And just that, that imagery of, of the tent being where God's glory resides, where we see God face to face. He's saying, I will rebuild this, this tent of mine, this, this place where my, my glory dwells among the people. And ultimately what this was, was a prophecy looking forward to a descendant of David, he says, I will rebuild the tent of David. Ultimately, the descendant is Jesus Christ. This was a promise when God would restore to his people who were in exile, who were being punished for disobeying him, when he would restore to his people this presence where his glory and and his power resides and where they may come and see him face to face. And ultimately, that tent was Jesus. And in that same context... God said, I will make my remnant come of mankind that they may seek the Lord. That's all the Jews who were, who were in exile for their disobedience. And all the Gentiles, they will have access to this Holy of Holies. They will have access to the Almighty God to see Him. And James is saying, we missed it. This is not something that... that God just sprung upon us. This has been God's will from the beginning of time that people from all walks of life would come to know Him. So they tell them, James says uh, in verse 19, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't put all these extra laws upon them and say, You need to fix yourself up. You need to get circumcised. You need to obey these laws to come to Jesus. You come as you are. But, he says in verse 20, We should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now you're like, Okay. What what type of list is this? Like, you don't just say, yeah, like, you would never write this letter. You would never just say, yeah, come to church with me on Sunday. Just make sure that you stay away from things that are polluted and sexual immorality and strangled things and blood. And, uh, and you won't stand out. 
but but really in this ancient context he's he's referring to all of their old pagan sacrifices and rituals when he's talking about things polluted by idols that's just all of the different um, idolatrous ceremonies and rituals that the they would have practiced before worshiping pagan gods that is no longer acceptable when they come to the true god same thing with sexual immorality he's not just talking about general sexual immorality but the word here is all is always in acts used as used in the context of these pagan temple rituals, the occult, a lot of strange sexual stuff going on, uh, worshiping false gods that we don't need to get into details with. But he's saying, yeah, can't participate in that as well. Um, things that have been strangled, you were supposed to, in, in, in among Judaism, all the animals that were brought for sacrifice and uh, for the temple rituals were to be properly drained. And when, when you just kill an animal by, by strangling it, it still has its blood matted in its, uh, in its fur and its wool and in the meat. And, and that was to be stayed away from. That sort of freaked Jews out. And uh, same thing with blood. These temple rituals, they would probably... Prior to the sacrifice, they would taste the blood of the animals to see that it was pure, and Jews were just like, we can't, we can't get down with that. And so he says that this, you come to God as you are. You come to him. God accepts you as you are. But all the things that were associated with your former way of life when you were living in rebellion to God, those things have to be checked at the door. God accepts you as you are. You don't have to present yourselves before he initiates action with you. But that doesn't mean that God just accepts all of these sinful practices that you used to be a part of. God has called you now to holiness. He has called you to a higher level of joy and purity and righteousness dwelling in his presence. And so they clarify for us the faith. They clarify the gospel. And just to summarize the third section in in communicating the gospel, they come up with the idea to to draft a letter that Paul and Barnabas can now go take back to Antioch and they can disperse to all the other churches saying, this is what we agreed upon in Jerusalem. This is what we are going to say is the, the, the core of the gospel. We've come to realize it's simply faith in Jesus Christ. Go tell all the churches. They send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch to let them know, back to the place where this whole controversy sort of started. And they send with them two other guys, Judas and Silas, just so that, you know, they would have credibility that Paul and Barnabas, the people of Antioch, would know that they didn't just, like, go to the beach or something for a week and come back and be like, yeah, we went to Jerusalem, we settled it, we were right, you were wrong, and um, let's listen to us. They actually have witnesses now who are like, yeah, we were there, they were there, this is how it's going to go. But they stay, and, and, and they... In verse 32, it says, And Judas and Silas, who were, there, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers by many words. They stayed, and, and where there was confusion, people not being clear on the gospel and exactly what God would have them and how they get to, to know God, once that matter was clarified in Jerusalem, these brothers now came and, and effectively discipled these new believers. They stayed with them and they cleared, cleared up the, the particulars of the faith so that they could more clearly know who God is. How do I walk with Him? How do I know Him? They're setting the pattern of discipleship for us. 
also that they might they might strengthen them. And this word strengthen goes back to the idea of, of like solidifying your your firmness, your foundation, so that they are no longer in, in future occasions they won't be able to be tossed back and forth and waver like they were at the beginning of this chapter. They'll be strengthened. They'll be rooted now. They know the truth of the faith. They go to communicate that with them. Paul and Barnabas, in fact, it says in verse 35, Paul and Barnabas remain there teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they went back to communicate the faith, but they wanted to continue the faith as well, continue the, the spreading, the proclamation of the faith, continue solidifying the roots of the church in all of the countryside. Because just look, just in this last section, it's really just verse 36 that I want to look at. Just imagine Paul saying this. He says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Just remember how long of a journey, like, they took two years out of their life to basically walk to Dallas from here. Out of their life, just to meet with people, to share the gospel. It was so infectious in them. It was so, all that their life revolved around, knowing Jesus and making His goodness and His truth known, that they said, let's go back. All those people that we met, let's follow up with them. Let's, let's, let's see how they're doing. In all the cities that they went to, meaning even the cities that they had nearly been killed in, that they had been left for dead in, he says, yeah, but those people that we met there, let's go back. Let's, let's meet with them. Let's see how they're, they're doing. Those who did embrace Christ, let's encourage them. Let's fellowship with them. Those who are in other countries, so to speak, we have some of our brothers and sisters back from, from Turkey who are, who are here and, and we're here to, to fellowship with them to, to build with them to connect with them to see how their faith is in Christ to, to rehearse the glories of Christ together that's what's in the heart of Paul he says let's go back it's just a clear evidence that the gospel is everything to Paul in this life at the risk of his life his convenience. Let's make Jesus known. So let's take this and, and learn from, from this story. Wherever you are at sort of in the in the spectrum of this story, if you're back in the first couple verses where you're confused about the faith or confused about different things in the faith, work towards clarity. Get with other folks who, who understand the faith or get some good books to read or just spend some more time in the Word and in prayer and learn the assurance of the things that you have been taught. Or if you are those who are, are clear on the gospel, God has given you a mind to, to understand the gospel, you've spent your time learning, it's now time to go communicate that to those who don't understand the gospel, to, to get around those who need to know the truth of the Lord. And let us all just continue to bring the word to the nations, to those who have never heard him, and to those who have had, but they still need to be built up. Let's continue to make Jesus known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord.
I thank you, Lord, that all of us in this room who are those who are who are far off, Lord, you initiated contact. We didn't have to just feel about and, and grope about until we, we found God, but you came and, and you who are the one that knows the heart, that speaks to the core of who we are deeper than any man ever could. You who know the heart, you can bear witness to us in our souls the truth of Christ. That this is not merely just an ancient book of, of fables and old stories that were created by, by man, but these are the foundational pillars of human history. This tells the story of the God of the universe and how He creates men and women and, and, and saves them. Those who go astray, He calls them back to Himself into fellowship with Him to experience life and joy everlasting forever in His presence. Pray that you would help us to not be satisfied with, with being children in the faith, Lord, but that we would continue to press on, to know, to study, to, to pray, to seek and find more of your glory. That we would be built up, that we would be strengthened, that we wouldn't be knocked to and fro by the things that we encounter in life. But that we would be rooted in you, that our faces would be fixed upon our rock. Our God who is unchanging, unflinching, who sees the end from the beginning and every one of our days before they come to be. It's in the glorious name of Jesus that we pray.